Hello everyone and thank you so much as always for clicking on this podcast and this particular episode of Joe Blogs about films, whether you're a first time listener or a long time listener, like I say every episode, it's greatly appreciated and thank you for your constant, constant support. 30 years of Jurassic Park, good lord, 30 years since the movie catapulted audiences into a strange new land filled with wonder and Nightmares, a film that still to this day captures the imaginations of any who sit and watch, and it will continue to do so for another 30 years and more. You don't see these kind of films made anymore. Sure, some have come close, but nothing compares to what Steven Spielberg and team did when making this astonishing piece of art. It's very surprising that I haven't discussed this film in depth sooner, being that it is one of my all-time favourite films. I've said before on the pod, Jaws, Jurassic Park, and The Dark Knight, those top three there, but I always get like a little anxious when it comes to talking about like such beloved features as this. At the end of the day, I'm hardly going to break new ground with this film review or discussion. Um, most of the points and trivia will no doubt be known by all, but I just want to sit down having just watched the film on the big screen again for its 30th anniversary and give you all my thoughts on this excellent film. If there's one thing really that I'm aiming to achieve with this podcast episode is that you guys finish listening and go, yeah, he's uh, he's quite a fan of that film, isn't he? (laughs) There is much to enjoy within this adventure from the incredible and beautiful landscapes, the park itself, the fantastic performances as well from the film's leads and of course, great dino action but to the score once again helmed by the king that is john williams is absolutely remarkable breathtaking stuff i think this is certainly i think it's one of if not my favorite piece by john williams and i know that's a big statement because star wars is up there don't get me wrong but that jurassic theme that classic jurassic theme is just unbelievable he is a master and throughout every no every key within this film and the score is absolutely perfection i had to get that in there about the score early doors because it's so iconic itself and it is really just a truly truly remarkable a remarkable piece of music said so that the theme itself as i say but all, all in all throughout the film what john williams did uh, with the score is just remarkable stuff remarkable stuff and what i also find interesting is like a, a new point of view for me with jurassic is that I've read the books you see now. I've read both books by Michael Crichton, and and so now I've like got these new sequences or opinions about both the film and the books. Given that obviously not everything can be translated from page, there are some really cool moments that would have been awesome to have seen in the film. However, I can see why things were cut or why things were changed altogether. Because if you haven't read the books, I would absolutely recommend you do get put some time aside and give them a read, because they are really, really excellent reads. The first one's obviously better, goes without saying, that same applies for the film, but they are, they're a lot darker as well, there's some really, really dark moments in there, so I really do recommend, if you've not checked out the books, go read them, they're very, very good. But I just remember being this very young kid, and seeing this film for the first time, and just thinking, dinosaurs are real, are we talking about? In the playground, you're like, dinosaurs are real? That's in Jurassic Park, are you kidding me? Like, Or at least, they're not real, but you were made to feel and look like that they were real. And I just don't think any film can ever recreate that feeling. There are going to be so many others out there like me that you were a massive dinosaur nerd growing up, and being a dino nerd in the 90s seemed perfect as we were we had all these incredible films to lap up. You know, the Jurassic Saga is the mould of dinosaur films and no other studio has reached the same quality or heights that the Jurassic Park films have. Even like, even the rubbish ones within 
the franchise within the Jurassic saga, they're still better than any Dino B movies that you watch. For example, like Jurassic Part 3, I think is pretty weak, but it's certainly a better viewing experience than this year's 65 starring Adam Driver, for example. That's just my opinion, though. You can disagree if you want to, but I still stand that 65 was awful. Um, I just love everything about this film. I think it's wonderful. I, I absolutely adore it. I cannot wait to talk about it. I'm so excited to go over it on this podcast. And who knows, we'll probably even, even tackle some more Jurassic films on that. We, we will do, but you know what I'm saying. It's just great to be talking about Jurassic. And this podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, as to rss.com. Jump onto Facebook and Instagram, search Joe Blogs About Films into said social sites and find the page give us a like and a follow get in touch as well i'm always posting up my steelbook blu-ray collection whatever it is so yeah get in touch that'd be awesome if you could also hit the notification button on apple spotify or wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast from you'll be then notified when new episodes are uploaded and finally if you could leave a review that would be absolutely tremendous hit the five star four star whatever button you wish I would love that. Thank you so much, as always, for clicking on the podcast. Let's dive back to the film, 65 Million Years in the Making. A billionaire has cracked the code for cloning dinosaur DNA and has built a theme park with living, breathing dinosaur attractions, which he hopes to make open to the public. A group of scientists are invited to preview the park, but malfunction and hair-raising adventure is just around the corner. Now, before we dive further into the film's juicy details, as well as some of mine slash our favourite moments, let's go back to the very beginning briefly, because following the release of Michael Crichton's novel Sphere, which dropped in 1987, Steven Spielberg had spoken with the author about his next book, and that was set to be Jurassic Park, and on hearing a few details about it, Spielberg was very interested straight away to direct the film adaptation should it ever get to that point. Now, the novel began as a screenplay that Crichton wrote in 1983. It was about a graduate student who recreates a dinosaur, eventually given his reasoning that genetic research is expensive and to quote, there is no pressing need to create a dinosaur, Crichton concluded that it would emerge from a desire to entertain, leading then the story to a wildlife park of extinct animals. Originally, the story was told from the point of view of a child, but Crichton changed it as everyone who saw this draft and saw this initial idea that he had of this story felt that it would be better told by an adult. Now, before Crichton's novel was published, four studios put in bids for its film's rights. You know, that's how really captivating the story was or the intriguing concepts and idea that definitely would work on screen you know people were clambering over one another to get their hands on the rights to make the film but with the backing of universal pictures spielberg then acquired the rights for 1.5 billion dollars before its publication in 1990 and Crichton was then hired for an additional 500,000 dollars to adapt the novel to the screen along with david kep who wrote the final draft it left out much much of the novel's exposition and violence while making numerous changes to the characters. Now, I've already kind of alluded to this earlier that I do think that the decision to tone down the violence for the film was a very wise one. Obviously, because it's going to get younger audiences into the cinemas to watch it, but some sequences in this book, they're quite horrifying. Like, in particular, there is one involving a nurse's ward and a newborn baby and some dinosaurs. Honestly... Graphic, very graphic at times. I would, as I say, highly recommend still you check out the book, but your your jaw's going to drop just how dark it is. And same for the sequel as well, for that matter. My only other really point is while we're talking on the book, in terms of a narrative change, is that 
the book at the start with anyways it really runs with this mystery um of like what actually is going on within like the local areas and and, and other islands that are away just just off from Isla Nublar you know like locals and officials are really unsure like what these strange creatures are that are washing up on their shores or like there's like this certain secrecy aspect at the start where a worker's alleged fall I think it's a fall has been crushed or something by some mechanism on Isla Nublar he's brought over to the nurses and such the hospital to bandage him up check him out this that and the other and there's like huge scratches all over and gashes and saliva this that and obviously everything's pointing to an animal attack but they're like no 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 this was just like a yeah like a, a health and safety thing that's gone wrong like a, someone's fell down this that and the other so like i really loved all that side of the book because it kept me so engaged even though like we know from the outside looking in we know it's dinosaurs that are doing it it's just it's really intense as you're reading along to start with because no one's got any idea what's going on and yeah very much enjoyed that but i do like what spielberg did to, did to change that to move the film along very nicely but back to the film while we're talking there spielberg was obviously looking to direct it there was a bit of a snag though because after completing Hook, again, a very good film, Spielberg wanted to then go off and film Schindler's List. So the president of Music Corporation of America, that's Universal Pictures' parent company at the time, that was Sid Sheinberg, gave him the green light to make Schindler's List on the condition that he makes Jurassic Park first. Now, it is famously known as well that Spielberg was working on both Jurassic and Schindler's List at the same time, which obviously caused great difficulty and when I say he was working on them at the same time I mean that with any film as you know there's post-production so you do the film you finish it all then you've got to go behind the scenes and do your edits and such and your post-production this and that obviously I've not made enough films to go more into detail than that but you know if you watch behind the scenes stuff you know there's a lot of tweaking to do or at least just you know final final touches and with that obviously by him finishing Jurassic to then go to do Schindler's Spielberg went on record to say that it was a very bipolar experience, which it would be given the fact that they're two completely different genres and different topics and one's very personal. You know, while Spielberg was working on Schindler's List, as I say, the post-production on Jurassic was in full swing. They were working with brilliant special effects members to create the dinosaurs and so on. ILM did an outstanding job in this film with the CGI and special effects. And there is a very, very, very good documentary on this whole experience that's available on YouTube. Spielberg, I don't want to butcher what he was saying about it because he really puts it all into some great depths and detail as to what that experience was like, but do make sure you go check it out. I'm not really sure what you'd search to find it on YouTube. If you just put Spielberg, Jurassic and Schindler's, I'm sure something would come on there. It is it is really, really a riveting watch, to be honest with you. Like it, you get into the, the real mindset of just how Spielberg was feeling, and trust me, it must have been so difficult. It must have been so difficult for other man to work on an adventure film uh, and also a truly heartbreaking, horrific real event that's very personal to him at the same time. So much so that actually, because it was getting so heavy going, Spielberg was set to leave Jurassic Park altogether. But of course, that didn't happen. It didn't happen gladly. Spielberg stuck around and would go on to make two of the greatest films ever made in quick succession. I honestly could go on waffling about my love for this man, but we all know just how incredible he really is. But backed by a marketing campaign that cost as much as the budget for the entire film, Jurassic Park overtook Spielberg's own E.T. to top the all-time world box office rankings with a haul of $914 million on its initial run 
1993. Jurassic Park would be the highest grossing film of Spielberg's career and the highest grossing film ever until 1997 with the release of James Cameron's Titanic. But following its 20th anniversary re-release in 2013, which, while we're talking about that, I saw Jurassic Park on this re-release in IMAX 3D and I kid you not, one of the best experiences in the cinema I've ever had. It looked astounding. But following that release in 2013, Jurassic Park became the oldest film in history to surpass $1 billion in ticket sales and the 17th film overall. Jurassic would go on to win all three Academy Awards for which it was nominated, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing and Best Visual Effects. I don't think anyone can disagree with that because I know that Spielberg behind the scenes as well with the sound editing and the sound of it and such, he ended up funding DTS, I believe it was, Digital Theatre System, to allow audiences to really hear the movie the way that it was intended to hear. There was some, I think even George Lucas uh, supervised elements of that as well, but there was a lot of effort that was put into it. So all of those, say all of those awards, those three awards it was nominated for, it had to win, it had to win them. But given the box office figures that you read regularly surrounding Jurassic, and with every time the film is re-released, you know, fans, we flood in, don't we? We flood in to watch this film again and again, and it just demonstrates the impact the film had on the film industry, not even had, has on the film industry, you know, and the pop culture as well as a whole was changed on the back of Jurassic Park. As we've seen over the years, the film has generated a few sequels which have had excellent moments in and lots of dino destruction, but none have come close to the original and the story it presented. Granted, obviously, the film, you know, it was adapted from the brilliant Michael Crichton novel, but the story is it's so much more than just dinosaurs being brought back to then cause a lot of destruction. You know, that's in there, yes. And that's where you get some of your great and pivotal moments. But it's it's the characters and their journeys that make it much more interesting, as well as their points of views on the scientific achievement that John Hammond and InGen have made. Jurassic Park essentially revolves around the theme of man interfering with nature or the idea that men and nature are always in conflict but nature will usually always win since man is part of nature this is a powerful theme in Crichton's Jurassic Park since many of the characters believe that they can create and control a natural world and it's one that the film drives home to within its story and this brings in that critique of the dystopian potentialities of science at the story that Jurassic Park includes because obviously you've got Ian Malcolm in there who is the conscience that reminds John Hammond of the immoral and unnatural path that has currently been taken. We all know the famous life uh, uh, finds a way quote and what that means, not only for the story within the film, but just everyday life in general. And this again adds fuel to the cons list of this idea that dinos can just be brought back and then made as a tourist attraction. It all screams bad idea that Malcolm continues to highlight. And while we're talking about Malcolm, because by the way, obviously, as we know, there's going to be spoilers. If you've not seen it, what are you doing? There's going to be spoilers, but as we know with revisits, I like to fly from here to there to everywhere. So there's not going to be, we're not going to go through like characters. Da, da, da. We're just going to go with the flow and see where, where it takes us. But while we're talking about Malcolm, Ian Malcolm is, an, is just one brilliant character along for this ride. There is so many great characters in this film. But Ian Malcolm, obviously played by Jeff Goldblum, is just an absolute standout. Like, in, and personally, obviously, my opinion on Jeff Goldblum is very high. I think he is pretty much a standout in nearly everything that he's in. Even if the film isn't great, you know what I mean? He's still an absolute standout. 
But Jurassic's not one of those not great films. It's an absolutely remarkable film, and he's just part of it, another remarkable performance in there. Like, he certainly shines in his character, too, is a figure in, like, the meme world and the pop culture world. Like, I, I genuinely... Who can forget the incredible spectacle of him sat with his chest out, you know? I mean, what a guy. What a guy, eh? But being a mathematician, Ian Malcolm specialises in chaos theory, which is mentioned throughout the film as well. This is a study of seemingly random or unpredictable behaviour in systems governed by unseen deterministic laws. He predicted through his theory that the island will quickly proceed to behave in unpredictable fashion and that it was an accident waiting to happen. And he wasn't wrong, let's be honest. It wasn't wrong at all. His life finds a way, quote, is on the back of the discussion with Henry Wu that all the dinos in Jurassic are female. But as we know, this doesn't stop the science and genetics within these dinosaurs that was used to create them. But because by using frog DNA to fill in the gene sequence gaps, they mutated the dinosaur genetic code and blended it with that of a frog's. And as characters discuss, some frogs can spontaneously change sex from male to female in a single-sex environment. Thus these creatures will thrive given the chance. This all again is nodded to and symbolised when we first are brought to Jurassic Park in the helicopter and we see Alan Grant struggling to secure his seatbelt and as two of the same parts, like in the end, because he can't clip them together, he ties the seatbelts together, fastening himself in, representing that that life finds a way. Just whilst we're briefly mentioning John Hammond as well, I want to spend a quick few minutes praising Richard Attenborough as his character because... Again, huge loss, bubbly character, you know what I mean, in terms, and, and a bubbly presence like Richard Attenborough was a tremendous performer, but I just felt like he played this part extremely well as this like eccentric and lovable millionaire, so to speak. Like his character in the film is certainly more likeable than the character in the book, who ultimately and deservedly is killed off in the book's third act. But Attenborough really played the part of like this gentleman who has had such a fantastic and unbelievable idea being able to bring that to life for young people and adults and has just ran with it without really thinking of the repercussions or damage this could do to life as we know it. And as Malcolm puts it, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. I think one of the best sequences of seeing like what page our characters are on, just touching on that because this quote comes from that sequence, and that's where they're all sat down having their dinner in that dark room with the projectors lighting everything up, so to speak. Like There's some excellent discussions which undoubtedly surprises Hammond when he realises that pretty much everyone is against the idea of his theme park. I think Ellie Sattler puts it perfectly to him when they are sat eating the ice cream following the park going south as well later on in the film. You know, Hammond is still under the delusion that he can get control of the park and still make things work, only for Ellie to exclaim that he never had control. That was the illusion. It's certainly a turning point for Hammond, this conversation. It suddenly sinks in just what he's done and caused and you know, just like Pandora's box, once you open it, it can never be put back in, which obviously, as we learn, because the film gets five more sequels. Atterbury in this role was a tremendous bit of casting as he went from such eccentricity and wonder behind his eyes to almost defeated by the end, knowing he has to leave this park and this idea behind. And I'm sure, like I said, we're going to be going over the characters as we move along very nicely, but I just very much love how... The characters are just a mixed match of so many different points of views. Like, majority aren't supportive or behind the idea of it, but there's 
there's that's the brilliance of the story and script. The film allows you to follow and understand where people sit in terms of messing with nature and bringing dinosaurs back into the mix. Like the film, for pacing with its, you know, like it's only two hours. It's a two-hour runtime. It spends enough time to really flesh out the characters and their beliefs, as well as you know, bringing in some fantastic dino action that puts our heroes in peril. Not many can do that so well, especially like, especially with handling those two key components. Usually these days, it's one or the other in film, isn't it? Like if a film does try to do both, it gets ridiculed that they spent too long developing characters or that there was no development and just all our action. Like I myself, <laughs> I myself have been quick to point these things out. I'm not going to say I'm not going to sit and go, I never do that. Like I'm aware of the hypocrisy there, don't worry. But for me, it's, it's when you watch a film like this, a film that's a classic that gets everything right, that it pains you when you see other films get it so wrong. Anyways, you know, I'm, I'm rambling. Let's get back to the good stuff. Like, so to create the dinosaurs, Spielberg thought of hiring Bob Gurr, who designed a giant mechanical King Kong for Universal Studios, Hollywood's King Kong Encounter. Upon reflection, he felt life-size dinosaurs would be too expensive and not all convincing. So instead, Spielberg sought the best effects supervisors in Hollywood. He brought in Stan Winston to create the animatronic dinosaurs, Phil Tippett, credited as dinosaur supervisor, to create go-motion dinosaurs for long shots, Paleontologist Jack Horner also supervised the designs to help fulfill Spielberg's desire to portray the dinosaurs as animals rather than monsters. The success, though, of being able to make digital dinosaurs as opposed to using the stop-motion dinosaurs that Phil Tippett was creating led to the famous quote from Tippett who said to Spielberg, I think I'm extinct. This quote was then later worked into the film where Grant says, looks like we're out of a job, to which Dr. Malcolm replies, don't you mean extinct? In reference to Phil Tippett commenting that his traditional stop-motion dinosaur models were going extinct because of CGI technology. It would have been it would have been quite... I mean, like, you can, again, watch behind the scenes. It would have been interesting to see stop-motion dinosaurs in this. I think there are, like, pre and stuff like that where you can see what it could have been, especially like the T-Rex outbreak. I could be misquoting there. But, yeah, it's an interesting... And, and again, it just shows you how much you know, Jurassic did for the film industry moving forward. Like I said, being able to digitally create these dinosaurs honestly was such a such a big, big moment. You know, Spielberg also decided to utilise the technology the best they could without making it look clear and obvious that CGI was in place. And so a lot of sequences in the film are night shoots, which can hide any glaring CGI, which, let's be honest, anything on a rainy night is super effective. The T-Rex outbreak sequence is phenomenal, and that's down to the mood of the sequence. I mean, we can talk about this sequence now whilst we're here, like because it's one of my favourite moments in cinema, hands down. I still, to this day, get goosebumps watching when Alan Grant yells, Ian, freeze, following Malcolm whipping out that flare. Honestly, I get shivers every single time. Talking about it now is giving me goosebumps. Now, we'll come to the details surrounding the creation of this extraordinary scene, but... I just don't think any other film has delivered something so marvellous yet horrifying at the same time. You have the young kids Lex and Tim in one car along with the blood-sucking lawyer Gennaro for a short spell and in the car behind you have Grant and Malcolm. All whilst we know that the power is out as the rain falls. I think again Spielberg's experience with Jaws comes into play here as we get that less is more approach and the build-up throughout the sequence. I feel as well that Spielberg just assessed 
every angle to make this moment as frightening as it can be. You have obviously the rain falling and the fact they have very limited lighting. The goat outside within the Rex enclosure is still there, barring away. You have then the added use of night vision goggles, just because why not? Which is great, again, just as adds the intensity when he sees the goat is gone. On top of that, you can hear the thuds of Rexy walking and to the shot of the iconic water ripples in the glass, all before we are then given the shock of one of the goat's legs hitting the top of the RV. It is, it is honestly just unbelievably suspenseful. As we then track across the fence, going up from obviously the RV to the fence, we then see the small arm of the T-Rex before fully unveiling this monstrous head as it gulps down the flesh of the goat. I kid you not, this whole sequence, if you haven't already guessed, is absolutely outstanding in my eyes. The ripples in the glass as well, obviously with the water, the famous shot that everyone tries to recreate by banging. You know, if you put a glass of water on, we want to just bang on the table to see if we can get that same that same effect. So that was obviously caused by the T-Rex's footsteps in the film, but it was inspired by Spielberg listening to Earth, Wind and Fire in his car and the vibrations that the bass rhythm caused, obviously. Lantieri was unsure how to create the shot until the night before filming when he put a glass of water on a guitar he was playing which he achieved the concentric circles in the water Spielberg wanted. The next morning, the guitar strings were put inside the car and a man on the floor plucked them to achieve the effect. But shooting the actual T-Rex attack itself with the animatronic dinosaur proved quite frustrating because when water soaked the foam rubber skin of the animatronic dinosaur, it caused the T-Rex to shake and quiver from the extra weight when the foam absorbed it. Apparently, this did cause like a lot of jump scares on set as the dinosaurs seemed to just come alive. Producer Kathleen Kennedy, there's a name for everyone, recalls the T-Rex went into the heebie-jeebies sometimes, scared the crap out of us. We'd be eating lunch and all of a sudden the T-Rex would just come alive. At first, we didn't know what was happening and then we realised it was the rain. You'd hear people start screaming. I would I would absolutely love to have been a fly on the wall for that. Like, and to counter this, uh, Stan Winston's crew would dry the model with chamois in between takes. Now I could go on and on and on and on and on about the sequence, but I genuinely think it's extremely exhilarating and tense throughout. Like it just continues to escalate once the T-Rex escapes. We go from the initial attack on Lex and Tim, which again, as we know, the T-Rex breaking the roof window was not supposed to happen when it charges down on them. So those screams from the youngsters that they're making in the film, they're pretty much very real. We then have the whole flare sequence involving Grant and Malcolm, which as I've mentioned, goosebumps every time. And it's also worth mentioning that Malcolm distracting the dinosaur with a flare was included at Jeff Goldblum's suggestion. So he felt like a heroic action was better than going by the script because the script, like Gennaro, that's the lawyer, Malcolm was scared and he would run away also. I do think that the change works so much better as, as we go in this moment from things seeming to be settling thanks to Grant's quick thinking and attempting to send Rexy back to its enclosure, only for Malcolm then to jump in the last minute thinking he's helping but ultimately causing further terror as the beast turns and then charges towards him. This ultimately leads to one of the craziest and, as a youngster, one of the scariest parts of the film when Gennaro is picked up and swung back and forth having been cowering on a toilet. Cue the internet memes, please. Um, all of this just builds and builds and builds before Grant, Lex and Tim are sent down to the T-Rex enclosure themselves whilst the beast roars on screen. Please, please, please tell me a sequence that delivers as well as this does. If it's from Jaws, then fair enough. But I honestly don't think Spielberg misses a beat here. This In the entire film, let's be honest, he doesn't miss a beat. But this moment, this sequence with the T-Rex breaking out, it is a moment in itself that makes Jurassic Park the blockbuster 
that it is. It's worth noting too as well that within the film, obviously we talk about the CGI and the way it was shot, this and that. The wide shots, they are CGI. When it with, with dinosaurs, the wide shots, they're CGI, and the close-ups, they're the animatronics, which again works well as having actual real creator dinosaurs in place for the film, as opposed to using all-out special effects is just more impacting and just, like I say, more believable, really. I think we went through a period of cinema, though, where it just all was CGI with monster movies, this and that. Like, However, it's been excellent and been really good to see films do a mix recently, like a mix-and-match approach, sorry, because it really sells it to the audience that you fully, like I say, believe... The creatures are real. That's the thing that stands out the most about Spielberg's work. He genuinely wants to make you and the rest of the audience and the studio too believe in what you're seeing. I think this sequence captivates it that 100%, you know. Like, it's 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 because of this sequence that I stand by Spielberg being the greatest director. That's not me saying that everyone else is bad or he outranks them. That's just my personal opinion. One of the other things, too, that Spielberg does extremely well within his films that I've noticed, especially for, for Jaws and, and for Jurassic, is that he can he can use, like, whatever, the ability to use whatever he can to deliver, like, a really intense chase. Like, we see in Jaws that he uses the wooden pier that he's pulled into the sea, which then is used to pinpoint and represent the shark in the water as it's chasing that civilian, you know, who's fallen in the water as well as they swim away. That's a fantastic moment within the film. And in Jurassic, we have, like, that famous RV falling down the tree sequence as Grant and Tim, they're trying to climb down from the tree and the RV's chasing them all the way down. Again, really brilliant. You don't necessarily need that to be like a dinosaur moment. That's just like... The terror's already happened with the T-Rex. This is just a bit of an aftershock of the earthquake, so to speak. You know what I mean? Now, we've been discussing Grant, Lex, and Tim, so I'll stick with them a little longer and zone in on Dr. Alan Grant. I quickly want to say, too, that his costume and outfit in this film is ridiculously cool and iconic. In fact, all the main characters, let's be honest, their outfits are iconic um, in their own right. You know, the costume design, credit to them, like the wardrobe team, Absolutely incredible. Absolutely for all. Malcolm, Ellie Sattler, obviously Alan Grant was talking about. Like the iconic hat that Alan Grant dons is a staple itself. Like for many paleontologists, hats are very, very significant. Jack Horner wrote about this in his book, How to Build a Dinosaur, that he states, I can't say that hats are as precious to paleontologists as they are to Texans, but they can be something of a signature or a talisman. Excavations are never ever done in the shade. Where there is erosion and exposure, there is inevitably sun, and a hat, which is absolutely necessary, can gather memories and significance. So Grant, as we know, is a world-renowned paleontologist working at a dig site at the start of the film, just, just outside Snakewater, Montana, when we do first meet he and Ellie. And I've been praising the pace of the film, but we establish just where Grant is in his personal life within a matter of minutes, or rather where he stands on the idea of children. I love the discussion that he and Ellie have and that Grant's stating that kids smell this and that, or at least some of them smell. Um, this on the back of the fantastic and traumatic monologue that he goes on to the poor child trying to state that raptors don't look scary. So naturally, Grant puts the kid in his place, depicting a rather grisly explanation of just how a raptor attacks and kills its prey, all the while simulating this with a raptor claw that he's found previously. I never noticed this as well, actually, because if you watch the start of the film when they're doing the the, the, the excavation, they're digging away, they're, they're you know, un unearthing this raptor, you can see at the bottom right that Grant actually picks up the raptor claw that, that, that very moment. I thought it was something that he had with him all the time, and it's only when I was watching it again at the cinema I was like, oh, there, there it is. Again, that moment, though, of him traumatising this kid, it is highly entertaining, but at the same time, it presents the audience the picture of someone that really isn't fussed about settling down to have children anytime soon. 
And just like great storytelling, the film then puts Grant as the parental figure for the two children in the film, showing that development throughout. Even on first meeting Lex and Tim, he is doing everything in his power to get away from them, so much so that he keeps swapping and changing the RV that he's going to go in because Tim continues to follow him and talk to him. But the turning point for Grant really is that T-Rex outbreak scene. Sounds rather obvious, I know. Like, However, he doesn't overthink his actions in attempting to save the children. He just acts on that parental instinct. He knows that they will be killed if he doesn't do something and so he does so which nearly works in that moment he nearly gets them all out obviously I know he does eventually get them out but in that moment it nearly nearly works because Tim obviously gets stuck in the car still then following this he has to make sure that the kids get to safety all the while he builds a close relationship with the two of them that by the end he genuinely does care for them and it's a lovely final shot of him with the two children resting their heads on him like I do really wish that the sequels like within them we had a small reunion with Grant, Lex and Tim much like the one they had with Malcolm in the Lost World it's a little sad that the audience has never got to see if they ever kept in touch or hear anything any remarks any nods I mean there could have been a nod here and there in Jurassic Park 3 but let's not talk too much about that one i mean why on earth why on earth would they split grant and ellie up like in jurassic part three this is a side tangent i know but they discuss the prospect of kids in the first one grant's not fussed then bonds with lex and tim we get that look between grant and ellie in the helicopter at the end so naturally naturally Let's break them up and she has a kid with someone else. Absolute madness. Who wrote that? Who? I know, I know Spielberg was a producer, but I can't believe he even let that through. You know what I mean? Yeah, not a fan. But that's what I was saying, though, that, that, you know, about the whole reuniting with Tim Lex and Grant. I mean, they could have even done it in Dominion. You know, that, that film, they brought a lot of people back for that film, but they didn't bring the kids back. So wasn't to be, I guess, wasn't to be. But seeing as we've mentioned Ellie Sattler as well, I really love how she is such a hard ass and can stand her own ground. Like, she doesn't take crap and does what she feels is best regardless of the outcome. Like, again, we see this time and time again within the film, you know, you only have to look at the, the moment with the sick triceratops or even, too, putting herself in danger with assisting Muldoon throughout, you know. She's not trained as Muldoon is when it comes to the dinosaurs or being around the park, but she knows that she can help, obviously, in the search for finding her loved ones and Hammond's loved ones too. Her relationship with Grant seems perfect for her too, to be honest. So she doesn't, like... He doesn't tell her what she can or can't do. They have a mutual respect, and she knows herself just what she can and can't do. And she too makes some absolute brilliant points towards Hammond following their arrival at the park, thrusting dinosaurs and man together, again doesn't sit well for what could happen and how the animals will stride to survive regardless. Also the fact that some of the plant life too that she, she points out and the vegetation that's been planted in the park shouldn't even exist and in some cases can be lethal, which further reiterates certain disregards that Hammond's had to power again returning to the point that they could do this not whether they should do this added to as well that she does put Hammond in his place when he says that he should really be go it should be him going to the maintenance shed and not her as he's a man and she's a woman which I love her response being we can discuss sexism in survival situations when I get back she's even able to outsmart the raptor as well in the maintenance shed when she is there like she is a survivor and a badass, even though it is, she isn't necessarily the main character, so to speak. There's enough layers there to work with and development that really pushes her to be a key part of the film, if not the main part as well, the main character, I would say, for Dominion when that came out. 
last year. But I do, you know, back to Grant, I do love his fascination with Raptors. We spoke about Raptors as well. We're going to talk, obviously. Oh, don't you worry. They get their time to shine in this film, and we will be talking about them very soon. But his love and admiration for the for the animals are quashed, obviously, following the events of this film. I mean, <laughs> when something tries to kill you and tries to eat you, I don't think you're going to be its biggest fan, are you? But there is an undertone that Grant and the rest of the paleontologists look set to be out of work following Hammond's scientist's success with cloning the dinosaurs. And I do like where we find him at the start, you know, discussing the evolution of dinosaurs and the sim similarities to birds to come full circle at the end when he looks out the window of the helicopter to see the birds flying past. It's worth noting that the original ending actually for Jurassic was going to have pterodactyls flying by instead of birds. However, that was changed, which to me makes absolute complete sense in my complete opinion. I think, why would you have pterodactyls? They weren't in the film, so there's no point including them. But they would eventually use the pterodactyls within Jurassic Part 3 and then use them at the end, that ending that they originally planned for Jurassic Part 1. That was the ending for Jurassic Part 3. So it all ended well, I guess. It all worked out for them. And before I do jump to the third act, um, which is extremely intense, thanks to certain raptors, I just want to go over some more of the other characters within the film that I haven't really discussed so far. We've, we've spoke about like the key players here, um, but I just want to just you know, quickly mention a few of the others. Obviously, we've spoken a fair bit about, about the park you know, going south with the likes of the T-Rex escaping. Well, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for good old Dennis Nedry. Wayne Knight portrayed the character, which, speaking of, I don't think I've seen Knight in much recently. Like, on checking his career, it looks that he does a lot of voice work now, which is great, but yeah, what a figure he was in films. Um, but he plays a very good part in, in, this, uh, in this role as Nedry, like a very dislikable, petulant, greedy employer that is dismayed by the lack of pay that he receives from Hammond. This ultimately leads him working with Dodgson and his company Biosyn to gain access to research and dino DNA that Hammond and InGen have cooked up over the past 10 years or so. Obviously, Biosyn are not mentioned in the film by name, but they are a very key factor in the novel. And obviously, they do come into it within uh, Dominion, but that was handled extremely, extremely poorly. It's ironic that despite Hammond's constant declarations of, we spared no expense, this and that, the park is undone entirely due to the expenses he did skimp on, notably leaving the security for masses of incredibly dangerous animals entirely in the hands of a single IT guy. Due to his meddling with the systems and his untimely demise, it leads everything open and the electric fences are all down, meaning our heroes are basically sitting ducks for an attack from any of the carnivores that are within the park. And I love the touch as well that Nedry has a picture of Oppenheimer on his computer desk. I think we all know who Oppenheimer is now and just how you know Nedry can resonate to Oppenheimer with his destruction of worlds. Really great touch that Spielberg added in there with the set design. But Nedry's demise, once again, is a brilliant one. Iconic too. Earlier in the film, the, the, the leads, obviously, they drive past in the RV, the Dilophosaurus pen. They're unable to see the animal, but again, it's a great setup for the beast when it does arrive in front of Nedry. And Nedry sadly does draw that short straw as it comes in contact with the dinosaur on his way to the dock to pass on this dinosaur embryo that is going back to Dodgson. I really like how Spielberg again builds attention here with this cute little dino, very much dog-like, you know, looks to be intrigued at the sight of Nedry and comes across as sweet and playful only for it to open up its frill 
around its neck and spit venom at him whilst making its terrifying roar. Now, the Dilophosaurus is one of my favourites in the Jurassic Saga and one that I wish we had more of. That being said, though, we have so little of them on screen that all of their moments are brilliant as, like, you savour every second. And I do love how Spielberg handled Nedry's death, too. Like, in the books, again, at the hands of the Dilophosaurus, it's very graphic, very, very dark. And I recommend listeners, um, another recommendation, obviously, is to go onto YouTube and check out the illustrated audiobook clip of this death on YouTube to witness its glory. It's very, very good. But I do like the films, obviously, Death and Edry too. And I love, again, how Spielberg utilises that POV aspect that we see in the likes of Jaws. You know, as Nedry's walking back up to his Jeep, the camera tracks and follows him through the grass, representing the dinosaur on the march for its dinner. It's such a great moment and a death that certainly is deserved for such a despicable and selfish character. And Wayne Knight himself felt Nedry did deserve to die, but it bothered him that it happened off screen and it was not as gory as the novel. I'm telling you, obviously, I'm telling you. But whilst I'm talking about the Nedry's, Nedry's demise, that Spielberg did admit too that the shot of the Barbasol can that falls away from Nedry and then being covered in mud was intentionally inserted to set up a potential sequel. It wasn't until that Michael Crichton's second book, The Lost World, came out that Spielberg realised that the story then would go off into a different direction. And that's a shame because we do get the, obviously, Barbasol can. Uh, I think in the Jurassic Park Camp Cretaceous, I think it's, it's definitely in there in terms of canon and story, this and that. I've not actually finished all of that I started some of the Camp Cretaceous series but never finished it um but obviously Barbasol the can does pop up in Dominion when you know you've got Dodgson packing up his things trying to leave obviously his that dinosaur sanctuary area so it's there so it's alluded to obviously even if you don't watch Camp Cretaceous that he did get that back but it would have been cool I think I know that the Barbasol can was going to have some key element or key factor within the story of the scrapped scripts for like Jurassic Park 3 or 4 I can't remember which one it was but anywho yeah The Lost World definitely went a different route now let's talk about the main antagonist for the third act, where I'm going to obviously bring in a few of the other characters as well, such as like Muldoon and Mr. Arnold, because obviously the, the main antagonists for the third act of the film are the Velociraptors, and I genuinely found the raptors more terrifying than the T-Rex in the film. We get a fantastic introduction to how dangerous the raptors actually are at the start of the film. Quick trivia as well, Spielberg is in the opening of the film with all the staff watching the cage that's been delivered with the raptor inside. But straight off, they are a terrifying, terrifying animal and one that Muldoon respects, but at the same time fears, more so fears, you know, of the danger that they oppose should they escape, which we know they do escape. Spielberg perfectly sets these up again by giving us only glimpses of what they look like before fully unveiling them in their prime. And it's a very, very terrifying sight when our leads watch the raptors get fed. We don't see anything. We see nothing. We only hear the noises of the cow being ripped to shreds and the roars and the noises that the raptors are making. And then obviously the leaves and such, the bushes, the shrubbery or whatever, they're just shaking galore. And all the while our characters are watching from above. We don't have to see any of this to understand just how violent they are. And on top of the imagery that we see, or rather don't see in this moment, you have the terrifying details from Muldoon as he's explaining how they had like six or seven raptors to start with, but the pack leader killed all but two of them and then had them attacking the fences for weaknesses and would never attack the same place twice, highlighting just how intelligent they are and it further adds to what grant was demonstrating to the young kid at the start again mainly highlighting the intelligence 
and ways that they kill. And Muldoon, too, explaining all of this to what he's been going over, it only adds that extra fear on top of what's already been assessed and discussed. It's a great technique as well to have this information drip-fed to us because once they're loose and, again, John Williams' score is tremendous when we track across to reveal the hole in the raptor fence and the footprints in the sand. There is like instant dread of the threat that waits for them all. And my goodness, does Spielberg cook up some glorious raptor moments in this film. Samuel L. Jackson's character is the first, obviously, to be gobbled by a raptor in the maintenance shed. Samuel L. Jackson was actually supposed to fly to Hawaii to film his character Arnold's death scene, but due to a hurricane that destroyed the set, the scene then was inevitably scrapped, which he does regret this because he was physically going to be chased by them and killed, and he really wanted to do it. And again, I think this would have been a cool sequence. However, I do like that again, this one too was off screen as it just lets your mind like imagine the horror that unfolded and all that's left of him is a severed arm. I do think as well in the original cut, it was going to be a, uh, they, they definitely made a prosthetic leg as well, a prosthetic severed leg too. Um, so there was going to be, you know, a bit more of uh, what was remained from Mr. Arnold too. But in addition to Mr. Arnold, Muldoon too meets his end at the hands or jaws of the Raptors. Yet again, though, another iconic line involved. There's so many iconic moments. I feel like it's going to be one of those pods that I'm going to re-listen to when I go back to editing it. And I'll be like, eh, I'm saying similar words again. <laughs> but it, again, it is so iconic. Like the line, clever girl, let's let's be honest. It's, it's on everything. You can get it on merchandise now. I, I mean, I always try and slip that in at any given opportunity in conversations. It's such a brilliant but bleak moment knowing that Muldoon is not getting out of this alive I love too that this moment has been set up thanks to Grant's explanation of how they hunt you know earlier in the film again talking to that young child this is something that the film does throughout to be honest with you it drips info in that then comes back around like another example is when Hammond states that they clocked the T-Rex at 30 miles per hour which when Muldoon Ellie and Malcolm are evading the T-Rex in the jeep they just have to make sure they reach over 30 miles an hour and they escape Lex also states in the film that she's a hacker as opposed to a nerd, as Tim calls her, which again lends a hand in helping reset all the power and the locks, etc. in the third act due to her knowledge and technical abilities. Things like this work so, so well in the film. There's setup and then there's payoff. And I can't believe we've spoken a lot about the Raptors without not mentioning the Raptors in the kitchen sequence. Again, absolutely fantastic. And the fact too that... Ellie makes the remark about the raptors that she trapped in the maintenance shed that it couldn't get out unless they've learned how to open doors. And then we see the raptor opening the kitchen door. Clever, clever animals indeed. That mid-shot too of having the circle, uh, the circle window, sorry, the glass pane in the door as the raptor places its head, eye and nose against it before breathing hard against it. It's like the opening act of what's to follow. It's also intense with the use of limited scoring too and allowing the audience to hear the raptors tapping the floor with their claws all the while Tim and Lex are evading them. It's just unbelievably intense and you can feel the tension throughout this moment. It is so, so good leading up towards the final stages of the film. And one of my favourite shots too, whilst we're talking about the raptors within this film is the one where the raptor is looking towards the ceiling. So our heroes, they've just made the phone call to Hammond, said that the phone lines are on, get the helicopter ready. They have to climb up into the ceiling to escape. They're crawling to safety. And somehow, obviously, when the raptor's bro broken in, like a projector has, has, has hit the raptor so that it shows lots of letters all over its body. It seems completely needless and doesn't need to be in there, but it's so beautiful and effective that, like... 
I love it. I have no idea why it's there, but I am not complaining at all. It is so, so effective. And this then obviously comes to, to the final stages of the film, which is such an excellent, excellent ending where we think, obviously, that our heroes are going to be, uh, yeah, like they're going to be slain at the hands of these vicious raptors, uh, only for the T-Rex to come in and save the day. Like Spielberg said all along that the, the, the T-Rex, that she is the star of the film. I, I, I genuinely love that moment, the, the, the cutting out of the score before the T-Rex roars, grabs the raptor, and then the music kicks in again for the classic Jurassic Park theme. And then, again, we talk about iconic and cinematic imagery, the one of the T-Rex roaring in the visitor centre as the banner falls down that says, when dinosaurs ruled the earth. It just works so bloody well, doesn't it? Like, it works so well. I also think, as well, it's a cool little bit of humour that's thrown in that the, the there's a moment just before they get on the helicopter to leave obviously to, to leave the park right at the end um, we see a close up shot of the logo Jurassic Park but it's covered in dirt um, the lettering that's been covered up is is to, to leave out it essentially says your ass park which again is just humour from Steven Spielberg I think it's just a great little touch if you look back now U-R-A-S-S that's not covered in mud and park is not covered in mud but the rest of the letters they are and I think it's just a really really humorous little touch there but the original ending as well too had a rib from that t-rex skeleton that they're all clambering on it was going to skewer one of the raptors and the jaw of the t-rex would then fall and kill another one but it seemed a little bit too phony for Spielberg and the crew did approach Spielberg to come up with a better ending they pitched different ideas but then Spielberg came up with that finale, like he needed the T-Rex to be the star at the very end. And it's such a such a powerful ending. And as I say, it just ticks along so nicely. One of the things that I was just thinking about when I was watching this film again in the cinema, um, which, by the way, I think it was 4K, because some of the images, like, it looked beautiful, you know what I mean? It looked really, really crisp. But I just couldn't get over just how fast-paced this film was, like there's no fat, there's no, there's no padding anywhere. And I wish, I mean, I was born in 93, so obviously I, I've only ever seen Jurassic um, on re-releases, you know, and such or VHS or whatever this and that. I've got it on every format imaginable. Um, I just wish I was there when this film came out originally in 93. Like is, if I could time, I mean, most of my time traveling wishes would be to go back to see like kind of these pivotal moments or like, you know, like the first blockbuster being Jaws, this and that, or just seeing and hearing what people are saying. I mean, I know we can go on the internet and see this and that, but yeah, there's so many films out there where you you know the impact they've had on 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 the cinematic and pop culture world that it would have been just remarkable to just um, to just witness it firsthand, you know. Um, and as I stated at the start of this podcast, Jurassic's going to go on. This first film is going to go on and continue to just create new fans to blow audiences away every single time. I don't think I've ever heard anyone that's seen this at the cinema like, has watched this has ever got bored of it. Is what I'm saying. I don't think anyone is is. There's no way given the opportunity, if this film's on TV, if this film's back at the cinema or whatever, you're always going to watch it. You know what I mean? Like you're always, there's always something. Like I don't, I'm always surprised if I ever hear anyone say they don't like Jurassic Park. I think it's one of those, like I say, that you just, it's universally loved. And if you don't like it, that's fine. You're wrong, but that's fine. This for me, as I say, is one of my all-time favourite films. It's always a toss-up between Jaws and Jurassic for different reasons, for many different reasons, for personal reasons. But I genuinely, genuinely like everything. Like Jurassic wouldn't be as good as it was if it wasn't for Spielberg's experience and and, and knowledge of doing Jaws. You know what I mean? Like obviously that that's where he learnt a lot. 
and was able to utilize and obviously had much more to work with too with Jurassic, you know, the breakthrough CGI that then would go on to obviously only impact cinema itself. What we've got nowadays is remarkable, but you watch Jurassic Park and you see films that come out these days and you still can't believe that the CGI is so bad in recent films when they got it so right early doors. It's like I've said it before when I was doing the Godzilla podcast, the 1998 film, the Godzilla one. Like, there were some moments in that when it was fine. You know what I mean? Like, as in the CGI, it could have been better, this and that. And then you think about, like, this came out in 93. Jurassic Park came out in 93, and it's still still better than majority films that came afterwards in terms of its CGI. So... I just think it's a tremendous film. It's, it's, if you've not guessed already, it's just I absolutely bloody love the thing. Bloody love it. But more importantly, I want to know what you think about it. I want to know what your favourite moments are, if I've gone over them, if I'm missing anything, I'm sure I will have. But it's been a long time coming. This has been one that I have... I honestly, I've had Jurassic in the drafts for so long, so it's so nice to finally put everything into it, put the time aside. It worked really well with its 30th anniversary coinciding with this podcast too, but I just really, really love talking about it. And of course, I will be going over the rest of the films too. I've already done Jurassic World 1 and 2 podcasts and Jurassic, and Jurassic World 3 podcasts. Do check them out. They're available to listen to now. Go back and listen to them if you want to. But in the coming weeks, months or whatever, I will be going over The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3 um, so don't worry, I'm looking forward to going over both of those just as just as much. The only thing I've got left to say about Jurassic is that it's definitely a 10 out of 10 for me. Always, always got time to watch it. It is outstanding stuff. Thank you so much for listening to this very extended podcast episode. I imagine I've been waffling for a long time now. I knew with the notes that I dropped that it was going to be a long one, but I do appreciate it all the same. It really is, really is appreciated. Do get in touch on the socials, give us a like and a follow, all that jazz. Uh, get in touch, let me know your favourite films, favourite Jurassic, favourite character in Jurassic, favourite moment, blah, blah, blah. Thank you as always for listening. Until the next episode, take care.